education is not only the currency of the future, it's the only currency that you can cash anywhere in the world. It's the only currency that cannot be stolen from the owner. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rob Langton. Our interview series delves into the lives of Australia's most respected property thought leaders and decision makers and uncovers what makes them tick. This is the interview. Mr Chairman, thanks for your time this morning. It's a pleasure to have you as a guest on our program. We're here at Greater Springfield, Springfield City Group, your offices. How proud of you of what you've achieved here? Well, I haven't achieved very much because there's a long way to go. <laughs> we are only about 20, 22, 20 to 25% developed. There's a long way to go, so I'm not going to clap hands yet. <laughs> this, could, this could take about another 40 to 60 years to finish. Take us through the, the vision you've had from the project from the beginning and where it's at today. The vision was to create a new city. Uh, as you know, the only city that has been built from scratch is Canberra. Canberra is about 85 years old. And uh, the, the challenge for us was to build the second city to, uh, to Canberra. And these will be the only two cities that have been built since the Federation. So to have the responsibility of having to build a city that is very unique is a real challenge and it's a huge responsibility on your head. You've got to do this right and you can't fail on this. <laughs> that puts a load on your head and a tremendous challenge that it has to be done right. And uh, so that, that's what we are. And what are the, the three core pillars of the development here? Education, health, and IT, the three of them all adds human and social capital. We are all about adding so human and social capital. This project is fundamental to adding human and social capital. It is not about trying to make a quick buck. And you've said previously that education is the currency of the future. So how are you seeing that education pillar? come within this project? How is that being, being developed? Education is not only the currency of the future, it's the only currency that you can cash anywhere in the world. It's the only currency that cannot be stolen from the owner. <laughs> so that means a lot. That means a lot to me. That means a lot to what I'm about that if we educate a human being, these are the three things that they have. And that cannot be stolen from the owner is very important. <laughs> that cash cannot be stolen from the owner. And the fact that this person can go and use that currency anywhere in the world is very powerful. You can work in London, you can work in Beijing, you can work in Delhi, you can work in Johannesburg. That's your currency that follows you wherever you go. <laughs> and it cannot be stolen from the owner. What more do you want me to give? What more do you want me to give to an individual as a gift? That's my commitment. And give us an idea of the numbers in terms of how many residents live here, what sort of companies you've been able to attract here. Where's the project at, at the moment? At the moment, we have got a population of 46,000. And we are moving at the rate of around about 5,000 per year. And it's all about attracting the right sort of people to come and live here. And because we have got 11 schools, and there is plans to add another 11 more schools, that's 22 schools all within five minutes of each other. Now, where does that happen? So this is attracting a certain type of 
the community who are focused on educating their children who value education. So Mr Chairman, you've partnered with many leading Australian and global companies, Mervac, Lendlease, General Electric. How have they come about? How, is, how have those relationships come about and, and what do you look for in, in their presence within this project? Well, you can't do everything yourself. You can't be an expert in, in building an entire city. So you have to bring talented people, talented organisations who are very good at certain things. In the case of Lendlease, we are very happy that they are doing a wonderful, wonderful residential community. They are focused on that and they are, and they are doing it very well. And that partnership has been going on for 21 years. We brought Mervac. Mervac are concentrating on our major, major shopping complex and that's doing very well. We are very happy that our partners are doing well. And we're bringing in partners for education. We are bringing universities here. They are bringing in schools here. They are all in their own skills. They are bringing their own skills. I can't play the piano or all the keys. You've got to have a <laughs> you've got to have someone playing the, each key by itself. And that's the beauty about this project. We are now going out to attract and turbocharge this project with even more powerful companies. This is on the way. This is the next step of the agenda. So, given the city has been built from the ground up. What have been the, the aspects, do you think, of, of being able to create a, a welcoming culture, of being able to attract potential residents here? What have they told you? Why, why do they want to move here? Well, that's what I mentioned. What has attracted 85% of the population here is the value that they place on education. They come there, they are young families. The average age is 29. They've got two children and say, they say, I want my children to get educated. That's what's trying to bring about a society that's a highly educated society. We've got 11 schools, five state schools, two Catholic schools, one Anglican school, one St. Peter's College, and one leading, leading indigenous school, Himbayamba. It's been voted as the number one in the country. So all these kids mix with each other. That is what brings the families here. To know their kids are not just isolated to one school. To be able to mix with all the kids everywhere else. That's the richness of the human being. You've also partnered with RNF Properties. What do they bring to the table and what aspect of the development are they involved in? R&F have got a right to develop 10,000 apartments over a 15-year period. They will bring a multicultural society here. They will add a lot of value in terms of the technology that they'll bring here. And they will add a lot of value to some form of housing that we won't be doing with others. And they are a major company. Reflecting on the 20th year of this project, what have been the, the biggest challenges that you've encountered? The biggest challenge is to get it started. <laughs> when you get control of 3,000 hectares of land <laughs> and you don't have any approvals, you don't have any major infrastructure, like the highways, you don't have a railway line. <laughs> all that initial start was the hardest. And above all, the even more harder was to get it approved by Queensland Parliament, which called for a special legislation to give approval for this project. It went to parliament. As you know, we have 89 parliamentarians. 
On that night, all the 89 hands went up, approving and giving birth to a new city in this country. Reflecting on your own personal life, you've had a life full of challenges that you've been able to overcome. What's the, the secret, do you think, to overcoming challenges or failure? Well, you just have to keep going. <laughs> we all have challenges. Every human being has got challenges. You tell me a human being who's had a smooth run from A to Z. <laughs> You've all got challenges. And when you have challenges, you just have to keep going. And one thing that my dad said to me when I failed at the university for the second time, I wrote to him and I said, Dad, I failed. I'm sorry I let you down. He didn't have any money to put me up. And he wrote and said, son, just keep going. The darkest night brings the brightest day. How do you anticipate that residents' needs will change? Not only here in, in Springfield, but over the next 15 to 20 years. And what are you doing to, to be able to adapt? Oh, we are trying to keep ahead of technology. And that's why we have a portion of land that's about 50 hectares called Idea City, which is innovation, design and entrepreneurship. That's where the thinking, that's the think tank part of the project. There's a, a, a bank of thinkers who come up there and thinking all the way of what technology is and how do we keep ahead of it. Mr Chairman, you mentioned technology there. Tell us about how you're able to adapt to future resident needs here in this development. What are you doing to, to try and adapt to what a resident may need in 50 or 20 years? The changing technology is the one that's, uh, that's what we've got to watch. When we started this project, we that's 20 years ago, when we started this project, kids at year one were given an Apple computer. And these, these are not kids now, they are about 25 years old now. <laughs> and thank God they had that learning at that stage. So it's all the time trying to look at ways and means of upskilling people as we move forward. And in terms of the Australian economy, are you concerned by potentially lower population growth figures or stagnant economic growth? Do you think that will have an impact here? It, it has an impact you know, nationally and not only, not only here, but nationally. But we are not worried. If you have the right product, they'll come. You have the right product, they will come. In fact, we have done better in COVID than otherwise. They know that something is stable, it's got longevity, it's got a vision, it's got a picture. They can see this picture for the next 70, 80 years. They say, that's where we want to be in. They, got, they have to got the comfort and security that this is strong. So we've seen, particularly over the last five to 10 years, a, a real concern about the climate and global warming. What are you doing here to try and future-proof this city from that perspective? Well, we have got a partnership with NG, E-N-G-I-E, the largest energy producer in the world. It's a French company. And they have come looking for us. We didn't go looking for them. And we've got this 50-year partnership with them that they will help us to upskill our population and technology as we move forward. And they are, they are one of the world leaders and we are just using their skills and their partnership to keep on upgrading our community. 
I read that prior to the launch of this city, you looked at around 15 other cities, other 15 other master plan communities across the world, including in the US and, and the UK. What did you see in those communities that you liked or didn't like, and how have you sort of gone about adapting this project? Yeah, that's a good question. We, when, we, when we were planning it, we wanted to make sure this plan was right and up there as a world leader. So we studied 13 master plan communities in the US. The fortunate thing is all the 13 CEOs of all these, com of these communities were very friendly to us. They were anxious to, sell, uh, to tell us how we should master plan a community. And we learned a lot from them. And the two others we studied were in UK. After having studied 15 of them, we came to the conclusion that every one of them had one or another major point missing. One was, for example, a dormitory suburb, a suburb with houses and houses and houses, nothing else, where the individuals left for work, mom was pushing a pram, waiting for some movement till about four or five and dad comes back. So that was a dormitory suburb. We said, we are not having that. Some did not have a strong emphasis on education. There was no university or no schools that are really classified as good schools. We said, we'll have the whole lot. There were some that did not have a university. So we said, we'll have a university. Some did not have a major shopping center. People were going outside their suburbs to, to do their shopping. Some did not have a railway line. They had to use public transport and so on and so forth, other than a railway line. So every city had some defects. And we said, since we've got a, a white sheet, we will do the whole lot together. And it was a real challenge. And we engaged uh, a world-leading architect firm who was from US and they gave us a lot of ideas. They have had a lot of experience on these things and we use them. And from then on, we think we've got a plan that is just about covers everything. I've got an invisible fence. If anybody runs away from this boundary of my land, <laughs> they won't find anything new. <laughs> and, and what about inspiration today? Where do you look to for inspiration? Do you look at overseas cities? Do you look somewhere else in Australia? What, what keeps you inspired? I think to talk to inspirational people who have done this and who are really qualified to talk about it, uh, you only meet a handful of them. But there are some very leading architects. They're very, very world-leading planners. The, the planner that we used is called Skidmore, Owen and Merrill, number 14 Wall Street, <laughs> US. And so we look for the, that brain bank. Somewhere we tap into the brain bank and see if we can get them engaged to look at this project. And it is that that made this that won the world's best master plan community, FIAPSI. This was recognized as the world's best leading master plan community. I want to go back to your personal life. You were born in Malaysia at a time when the country was at war. Tell us about the most vivid memories you have of that period. The, the very vivid experience is I was about three years old. A jeep pulled outside our house with four Japanese soldiers. Our dog went out to, you know, <laughs> was barking at them. They shot the dog. They yelled to my dad. Dad came out. 
They whacked him with a rifle butt, put him into the jeep, took him away, went to jail. That was a real vivid <laughs> memory. Dad was a supporter of the British. He was, he was studying the British movements against the Japanese and they discovered that he was virtually a spy and informing all the residents what's going to happen. So they didn't want him. <laughs> and I think he was one of two that actually made it out of jail. What, what was it? What, what, what sort of knack? Was it a charm? How, how did it get out of jail? Oh, no, my mother had, had the charm, I think. I think she really suffered a lot, a lot of suffering. 142 went to jail. And every day the Japanese wanted some people to die because they don't have to look after them. <laughs> so it just went on and on and on and on until there were only two of them. And fortunately, the British came and invaded the country and Japanese had to, you know, had to leave the country. So I was very fortunate about that. If he had stayed there many longer, he would have been gone. Chairman, I want to stick with that theme of your parents. As I understand it, your mother used to actually give her jewellery to the guards just to be able to provide food for your father. And then when your father was released from jail, the first thing he did was actually enrol the kids in school. Tell us about what you recall of that period. Well, mum is a very brave woman. She was 28, had seven kids, dad in jail, no money coming in. And, uh, but she used to, the, the rule was that you can only feed a, 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 a prisoner once a month. But she would try and go there every week. And she managed to somehow get in there every week. But one day a soldier came and said, oh, hey, you've been misbehaving a bit here. So you're not going to enter the prison now. And if you take one step, I'll pull the rifle on your head. And she's quite a brave, tough girl. She said, so she said, she said, yeah, take my chain, let me in. And she went and fed dad. And that's the sort of a person that, that she is. And that's the sort of a resilience that we ended up having to fight under duress. So dad came out of jail and uh, instead of going up straight to home, he went and registered all the ch seven children in schools and took a bus which takes about an hour to get back to go home. That's, that's the importance of education. And um, then when um, I had to be sent to uni here, um, he, they had very little money, but I don't know how they found their money, but they, I came on a boat, landed in Sydney, and Sydney was moving at a million miles faster than my, <laughs> my little village. <laughs> there was nothing moving there. So during that period, how did, how did you find your way? I think you left when you were about 17 uh, and eventually found your way from Fremantle over to Sydney. What was your first impressions, apart from the big city, what were your first impressions and, and how did you find your way? I've got a, something in me that I've got a survival attitude. I don't worry about anything, I just take it on. The changing environment doesn't worry me. In fact, I take it as a challenge and I just face it. So nothing worried me. I know the, the, the trams were moving at a million miles an hour, the trains were moving. There's a lot of people there <laughs> from, from a village where there were hardly any, anybody moving around. But I adapt to a changing condition very quickly. So I got, uh, I got into uni, I had no money. I ended up being a taxi driver in Sydney. And I enjoyed taxi driving. I met a lot of people. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> it was all fun, you know. You don't want to pull yourself down. You are in control of your life. There's nobody in control of your life. 
you are your very best friend. You're with this friend for 24 hours a day, seven days a week from birth to death. You, you better be good to your friend. <laughs> and once you'd left university, you went and worked back over in Southeast Asia. How much had that region changed since, since you grew up there and what sort of roles were you doing there? I, I was very, very fortunate. That was the only time I had some success. I was very fortunate. I was working on World Bank projects and Asian Development Bank projects. And we were master planning cities for 30 years. How do you supply water supply for 30 years ahead? How do you supply, supply electricity? What are the planning regulations that you have to go through? That's where I learned long-term planning. And so I had a wonderful opportunity of learning long-term planning and financing of major projects. And that gave me a great, great knowledge uh, to be, to be, to be what I had trained for as a civil engineer, and uh, it was, it was really, it was probably the best thing that I ever had. And then in 1971, you return to Australia, but this time you live in Perth instead of Sydney. Yeah. Yeah. What attracted you to Perth? I lived in Perth because I know Perth was moving very fast. There was a mineral boom, um, and I, I had also a brother there, and so that gave me a bit of a start as a stepping stone. But uh, when I landed in Perth, the so-called mining boom, the best mining boom this country has ever seen, ever, ever seen, including today, all crashed. And people were walking in the streets, no job, high amount of unemployment. I, I couldn't get a job as a civil engineer, even though I was, I was had a 10 years experience. I rang the unemployment service and they said, there's no jobs for you. So I'm one who will ring them again and again and again. And the bloke got a bit tired of me. He said, please don't ring me anymore. <laughs> You've got wife and three children, look after them. Go and join the dole queue. I was very reluctant to join the dole queue. Anyway, I couldn't go back to this chap, so I went and joined the dole queue. I wore a suit and tie and everything else. And ahead of me were 30 chaps in shorts and thongs and sleeveless shirts. Hot summer in Perth, sleeveless shirts. And there were, the queue was moving slowly, waiting for their door. I stood there for five minutes. I said, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. I walked out of the queue. I cried and cried like a child. And I said, what's happened to my life? I was having a wonderful job where I was. And now I'm on the dole queue. I'm not going to be on the dole queue. So I walked out of it, went back, and I'm cutting the story short. I met a, an estate agent, and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing nothing. He said, come and join me. So I went and joined him. <laughs> he was actually very glad because I was pretty good at that. <laughs> I learned the art of real estate. I really learned just about everything that I had to learn, all the planning rules and everything else. And he was very happy with me. And we were selling real estate. And when I was not selling real estate, I met a Swedish migrant. And, and I said to him, what are you doing? He said, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so I joined him. And he said, I'll tell you one thing. We could make millions on this. And I said, what is it? He, Australia had just gone metric. He had a, he had a ruler that was one, on one side was metric. The other side was imperial. <laughs> he said, we could sell it and make a fortune. 
<laughs> so just on the on the rulers, you you sold a, a batch of thirteen, and you thought you were on top of the world, and and you thought, how good's life? To, to, tell us a, about that feeling. Well, I was going from one hardware shop to the other hardware shop, trying to sell rulers, and uh, not selling much. <laughs> one day, I did sell thirteen rulers to a hardware shop, and I was so 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 happy. Went home. My wife said, you're very happy today. <laughs> I said, I've sold 30 rulers, my dear. We made much money. I said, no, but you watch the space. You watch the space. We're <laughs> going to change. <laughs> Things are going to change quickly. <laughs> I think it is important that you have the resilience to fight. Whenever you have got a problem, don't say I have a problem. You say, I'm going to find a solution. That's the spirit we want to try and instill. There's always a hurdle, a hurdle, a hurdle, which I'm overcoming the hurdles. And that's why I said, you've got to be your best friend. <laughs> Trust your friend. <laughs> so chaps, I went on, and I've got to go now, but I went, um, uh, I worked for the water board. I was not happy there. I went out as a builder, developer with a fellow colleague of mine, who was also a civil engineer. And we worked for five years, we started with a few thousand dollars, and this is an actual fact. In 1981, we had made $7 million. Everything we touched went gold. And then my partner said he had met an American girl and he was going to the States. So I went and I was recommended that I go public. I went public to raise $14 million. To give you an idea, Westfield were trying to raise $150 million. So you can see them just comparing dollars for those years. Frank Lowe went to raise $150 million. We went to raise $14 million. After a lot of problems, we raised the $14 million, but had to return it all back due to a technical fault. And my company just crashed. I became broke, B-R-O-K-E, broke, with wife and four children. Narin was just born then, and I just had to start life again. That's when I left Perth and came with my friend Bob Sharpless, my business partner, and started life here with nothing. When you came here to Brisbane, you started developing projects in Brisbane and Cairns. What sort of projects were you developing? Oh, we were developing anything. We. We, we just went in there and said, we're going for everything. But to cut short, we did two hotels for Holiday Inn. One was the one in Cairns, one was here. Now it's no hotel. We then went and did um, some subdivisions. And then we made about $4 million within four years. Then for some reason, we went broke. We only had about $300,000, that's when this land came on the market. When this land came on the market, this was an unsaleable land, incidentally. It was on the market for nine months. No one wanted to buy it. It was in an area that was economically very depressed, high unemployment rate, high crime rate. The only successful building that was going on here was a state prison, was growing faster and faster. That was the only successful building. And not far from it was a mental asylum. And only one third of the land was zoned for development. 
the rest was zoned for mining and not one person in this country wanted to buy it not one organization wanted to buy it they said we've got enough problems why should we want to go and buy more problems and pay money for it you pay money to buy problems <laughs> so, so it was an unwanted unsaleable land i won't tell you the big story how i got got it contracted the company did not want to see me because they knew i had just come out of a creditors meeting but i managed to get control of it in a legal way <laughs> and uh, so the story began about this this one it's it's a long story it was a painful story what happens now with springfield city group your children are involved what are their roles and and what's the project and development going to be like in 10 to 15 years under whose leadership do you think i think i've got a business partner who is here and i've got children here and i've got some very strong people uh, who are working as our staff but as i said to you we are going to put turbo charge this project to because the balance of it is very very exciting and it involves very very talented companies to come and play so we've got that mapped out and uh, it's quite a long story but i won't tell that to you today when when people get success get to a, a level of of success like you have they often change i wanted to know has your routine changed has your outlook on wealth and success changed definitely not it's not going to influence me i have a motto that's very strong chase the success money will follow i don't chase the money this whole project as i said to you is about enhancing human and social capital what do i want to leave as a legacy i've enhanced the lives of many many people and they've all benefited out of having been involved in what i've been involved so money won't you won't buy me the form of money i don't run after money that's why i say chase the success money will follow don't chase the money and failures don't worry me <laughs> just think about it but just get up the bag and start running and i think in the end of the day you can't take the money i haven't seen anybody taking the money with them <laughs> so there is something that you owe to the society at large and i enjoy that i enjoy the aspect of sharing time with kids to try and make them better kids i like to see families making sure their kids are educated and um, i do not believe in handing out money to somebody for the fun of it they got to earn it you got to you got to fight for what you want so does this feel like work to you coming into this office every day or is this a real passion project for you it's not, it definitely not work i enjoy creativity and imagineering imagineering which is imagine beyond your normal limits and keeping yourself active uh, and enjoying something that you're doing and especially if it's adding value to human society i enjoy it i have the thrill and uh, talking to individuals who can also excite me i will not engage in conversation with anybody unless they're adding value to me and and to themselves i'm off <laughs> i won't waste my time <laughs> some have said to me that i'm this and that <laughs> 
But if I don't add value to you and I don't add value to myself, I just walk away. <laughs> just on value, what does value mean to you? How do you provide value? Is it just financial or is it through some somewhere else? No, I, I don't I don't do it for financial reasons. I think, uh, as I said, chase the success and money will follow. Just want to be successful. <laughs> you want to be the fastest runner in the world. Don't think about money. Thanks so much for your time this morning.